All right, everybody. Here we go. We're going to do it. Hey, this morning, we're going to spend all of our time in 1 John. That's not John the Gospel. That's John's first letter to the, uh, the spread out church across the New Testament uh, in the New World. So if you'll go there, spend some time getting to that place in your Bible, mark that with your thumb. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1, really easy. And then we'll work through all of chapter 1, which isn't very long, and then the first couple of verses of chapter 2 as well. Uh, this morning is our final, our fourth and final week looking at the spiritual practice of simplicity, or uh, you might think the spiritual discipline. I prefer the language of practice because I think discipline, at least in my house growing up, meant that something bad that happened to you because you made bad choices. Practice is a little more friendly, right? It's something that we work on and that we repeat and that we continue to apply to our lives, believing that if we do, something might change about us. Um, we have defined a spiritual practice so far, kind of that same way, by saying that it's a cooperative activity. It's something that you do together with God, between the two of you, which will prepare you for obedience. And not just obedience for its own sake, but obedience that comes out of love. The kind of obedience that wants to do what God says because it loves who God is and appreciates what God has done. Uh, so that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for obedience as Christian people that comes from fear of what might happen if we're not obedient. We're not looking for obedience that wants to somehow appease God, win his favor over, earn more of his love. We're also not trying to impress the other people at church, score points in life group or in our marriage. We want, excuse me, to become the kinds of people who obey God because we love him, because we really can understand and appreciate what he has done for us in Christ and out of that salvation offered so freely, choose to walk in obedience. Uh, three weeks in, we've covered the following practical steps that people like you and I can, we don't have to, but we can choose to take if we want to, to become better prepared for obedience to God. Uh, we said week one that mostly for us this boils down to a focus on seeking first the kingdom of God and personal righteousness, Christ-likeness in our lives. That's one of our primary objectives. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 6, if you remember, seemed to think that this was the remedy to being worried about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what your body looks like or feels like or what clothes you'll wear, which is just sort of a sample set of the kinds of things that can give us anxiety. Jesus' solution to that is seek first God's kingdom. And if you'll do that, then God will add unto your life everything else that you need. We tried to get more practical in weeks two and three, and so we focused week two on time. We focused last week, week three, on money. And when it comes to time, applying the principles of simplicity, we said that there are these practical steps we can take. We can try to identify distractions in our lives. Be honest with ourselves about how we waste the time that God has given us to steward. We can work to establish priorities. This goes right in lockstep with the week one principle of seeking first the kingdom of God. Finding out what it is that our life is supposed to be about. And we do this in conjunction with the people with whom we are in community. We do it in conjunction with our spouse, our roommates, our family. Asking ourselves, what is the main thing in my life? Not that I have to have like a theme for, for the next 40 years, but in the next six months to three years. What are the factors? Where am I responsible? What do I need to be focused on so that I can be sure that I'm doing, spending my time on the things that God wants me to prioritize? And then as we work through that, we find ourselves able to create margin in our lives so that when there are things that do interrupt us, if those things fit into our priorities, we can still participate in them. We don't want to be so focused on what we think the main thing is that we miss all of the emergent opportunities to do ministry that come our way on a daily basis. So we want to try to create margin in our lives when it comes to our time. Regarding how we interact with our wealth, this is what we talked about last week. We said that we need to first assess our real income. We talked a little bit about how 
rare it can be for modern people to, to actually know exactly what they make on a monthly basis uh, and, and know all of the, the output places where their money is going as well. If we can do that, then we have the opportunity to follow Jesus into financial generosity. And as we go, we can pray for protection against the lure of wealth, the idea of loving money or giving up sacrificing the parts of our lives that matter in order to earn more, make more, uh, be more important in the workplace. So today what we want to do is we want to bring to bear the principles of simplicity on the way that we think about ourselves. So this is going to feel a little bit like what we did in week one. Week one, I tried to lay the groundwork for you, but I want to push a little harder today and not just talk about the outcomes of simplicity, but focus a little bit more on what has to happen inside of us if we're going to take on a lifestyle of simplicity. I wanna try to help you untangle your understanding of who you are a little bit so that you can simply be your true self, and I think you'll find that this will really massively, radically simplify the way that you think about your days, your months, your years, etc. So we're gonna go to 1 John 1, but before we head there, I'll just tell you what we're looking for. We're looking for the opportunity from the Bible to find out who we are. This is the first step if we want to live simply. If we want to live with simplicity, we have to know, we have to find out who we really are. Now, this may sound like the lead-in to a self-help sermon, but it's not. You'll see very soon. We're going to hear from God's perspective, and that's going to be the only perspective that we really care about. If you're not familiar with John's first letter to the Christian church. Uh, It was written after what happened in the book of Acts, and so we know historically that the Christians uh, of the early church had scattered. Uh, They found themselves very much like you and I in a place and a time where the government did not represent their principles as Christians, uh, where there was no real social or economic advantage to being a Christian or being known as a Christian, um, and in a place where they sometimes didn't know what to do about the rapid decline of the culture around them, very similar to the days that you and I live in. I believe John's letter is extremely helpful for people like them, who it was written to, but also for people like you and I, who live in a very similar world. Here's what John wrote in his first letter to the scattered church. He said, this is what we proclaim to you. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. So John is referencing three of the five senses. He's saying, this thing that I'm telling you about, I've seen it, I've heard it, and I've touched it with my own hands. That's about as good as it can get uh, when it comes to a person being an eyewitness to something, right? And so John is saying, I'm going to say something in a second, and it may be radical, or it may be uh, a little bit pointed, or it may have a a bit of a sharp edge to it, uh, but I want you to know that I'm only speaking what's true. This isn't my opinion. This isn't just my perspective. I'm not trying to lay out a philosophy that will somehow make your life easier. I'm going to regurgitate to you what you've already heard and what I've said from the beginning, which is the truth according to Jesus. Verse 2, he says, the life that was revealed, the life that we have seen, and the life that we testify and announce to you, the eternal life that was with the Father, that was revealed to us as well. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He goes on in verse 3. He says, what we have seen and heard, we announce to you as well, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying, this isn't about condemnation. This is about me being clear with you so that you can enter into something that's valuable, that you want to be a part of, being in fellowship with the apostles, with the saints, with the Father and with Jesus himself. Verse 4. So, he says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In other words, John is saying, I'm sending you this letter because if you listen to this letter and you do what it says, my joy will be complete because you will join us 
because there will be even more people following Jesus because within this letter are the steps you need to take to do that. Verse 5, and here's the key verse in this whole passage. Now this is the gospel message that we have heard from him, from Jesus, and that we now announce to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, that's a good idea, but how does that work its way out practically? Well, John goes on to tell us in verse 6. He says, if, if we say we have fellowship with God, and yet we keep on walking in the darkness, then we are lying, and we are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light, just as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses us from all of our sin. If we say we do not bear the guilt of sin, then we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and righteous. He forgives us our sins, and even better, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and that proves that God's word is not in us. Then verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, My little children, he doesn't mean that condescending. He means that to come across as very warm and comforting to the people he's writing to. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do, if anybody sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he's our advocate. And he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Now, John isn't laying out here a ton of terribly clear steps to take, is he? You probably have read 1 John 1 a lot of times in your life. It's short. It's a great place to start if you're a new believer. It doesn't seem to be overly practical. It's my understanding, though, that John is reminding the scattered Christians of the new world exactly who they are because he knows what maybe we don't know, which is if we don't know who we are, we'll never live the way that we should. If it's not crystal clear in our minds exactly who we were before Christ and exactly who we are now that we are in Christ— then we have almost no hope of getting any of this right. What we would have to do then, if we were going to try to be Christians without the Christ in our Christianity, is we would have to find a way to work as hard as possible to force our lives to look like Jesus' life. Most of us have tried that, right, for a couple of weeks or maybe a few years of our lives. We've thought, I'm going to do my best here. I'm going to exert my total effort. I'm going to white-knuckle, if you will, my way through this Christian life and it doesn't work. And on the, on the backside of it, we don't, we're not glad that we did it. We don't feel better because of the, the time and the effort that we exerted trying to be like Christ of our own willpower. In fact, most of us would say that that's a spiritual low point for us when we come out of that season of pushing and pushing and pushing from our own strength and our own will. I believe that many people who walk away from Christianity walk away from that. That's what they mean when they say Christianity. A system of religious rules to keep that they couldn't keep on their own. And so they feel rejected, or they feel unable, or they feel too weak. And honestly, they probably are all of those things, because they haven't built their life on the mercy of Jesus. So we want to start where John tells us to start, by looking in the spiritual mirror and understanding who we are. So who does John say that we are? Let's take it verse by verse. In verse 3, John says that we are the kind of people who could have fellowship with the apostles of Jesus. That sounds crazy to you and me, because we live several thousand years after the last apostle died. But spiritually, we can believe what they believed. We can be connected to the living God who is timeless and was just alive then with those apostles as he is now for us. And in that same way, we can sense this deep and abiding friendship with a group of people that have been dead for a very, very long time. This is why, as Christians, it's important to be aware of the history of the church, to know the great writers and the great theologians and those who've gone before. 
Because Christianity isn't an individual sport. It's a team sport. And so our team isn't just the people who happen to be alive at this local church or in our town or in our state or in our country. Our team is all the saints who've gone before. And John is saying, through Christ, we can become the kind of people who have real, honest interaction with the Spirit of God and, by extension, the church, all of the church for all of history. That's a lot of potential. In verse 6, John says that we are the kind of people who could have fellowship. And when I say fellowship, I don't just mean like uh, uh, hanging out in the lobby after church for a minute and talking college football. That's fine. What I mean about when I say fellowship is a deep and abiding friendship, the kind of friendship that requires you to be open and honest, but that is reciprocated in the same way, where a person is also open and honest with you about who they really are and what's going on with them. John says that that's not only available to us on the same level as the apostles, we can, be, we can know them and be near to them. It's also available to us with God himself. We can have fellowship. You can have deep and abiding friendship with the God of the universe who made all things. Now, the other side of that is we have a choice to make, right? Because John also says in verse 6 that we could continue walking in darkness instead of practicing the light. In verse 7, he says, we are the kind of people who could, if we want, walk in the same way that Jesus walked in the light, which I think is a great definition of discipleship. He says, we're the kind of people who can have deep and abiding friendships with other believers as well. And then we come to verse 8. And I want to read it again to you and then try to explain to you what John is saying. He says, if we say that we do not bear the guilt of sin, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Up to this point, the first seven verses, all of John's ifs that he's communicating in terms of have to do with the potential that you and I have of knowing Jesus, being in communion with him, being in communion with the other saints, being connected to the saints that have gone before. It's all really good stuff. It's appealing. It's almost like a short commercial for Christianity. If you were a Christian, you would have this, and you would have this, and you would have this, so call now, right? And we'll make it happen. This is the turning point in verse eight, in which now John begins to speak in terms of what will happen if this is not the case for you. So I want to be clear here. I know that I'm speaking to a group of people who mostly, I think the majority of us would raise our hand and say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a Christian. So don't hear John condemning you or returning you back to your sinful, wicked past. But what he's going to try to do is help you understand that there's a little more to this Christianity thing than simply aligning your thoughts with Christianity or, or saying to yourself, yeah, that sounds pretty good and I generally believe that and I hope everything works out in the end. John's going to call us to practice. That's what he says in verse uh, seven, the verse before this, right? He says practicing the truth, not just believing it, practicing it. So that's kind of the lead into verse eight here. And here's what I think he's saying. It's a little bit more painful. He's, he's saying to us that in our flesh, in our unredeemed bodies, especially if we continue to live without discipline, we are guilty of rebellion against God. We bear the guilt of our sin within us. Now you and I are thinking, sure, that's good and right, but also doesn't Jesus take that guilt away? Yes, he does. Doesn't he give us his life in our place so that we are made righteous in God's sight? Yes, he does. And isn't his resurrection the thing that kind of proves that all of this is going to work itself out in the end for us? Yes, that's exactly right. But what John is saying is apparently there are some people somewhere, he doesn't necessarily, he's not thinking of us right here in Anchorage, but maybe he should be. There are some people somewhere in the church universal who have come to believe that because of God's goodness to them, they never really had it that wrong in the first place. They weren't all that guilty. There wasn't that much wrong with their life. They didn't really need God's grace. Sure, they wanted it. They came to him willingly, and they opened themselves up to his influence. 
but was it really that bad? Was it as bad as some people get it? Was it as bad as people who murder? Was it as bad as people who steal a lot of money from people who don't know better? Was it as bad as a man who betrays his family or a woman who betrays her family? It's easy, I think, for us over time to start to separate ourselves from just how bad our sin really is. And what John is doing is returning our focus to who we were before Jesus saved us, not to condemn us, not because it's his goal to make us feel terrible, but because he understands that it's easy to lose sight of that. And if we lose sight of how bad things were, we're not gonna see God's grace for how amazing it is. Many of the songs that we sing at this church, and I think at most churches, uh, depend on you knowing that you're a sinner for them to have very much meaning. And oftentimes I think we come into this room and we're stressed and we're busy and we've done our best, right? We've done everything we can to get our family here and everybody's clothes are at least on and facing the right direction. And, and so we're in the seats and we're trying to focus, but it can feel a little jarring to sit down and sing or stand and sing about mercy and grace that we haven't really engaged with a lot in the last week. Or, or on the other side of the coin, to, to, to sing a song of repentance and confession about who we are without Jesus when we haven't really thought about that a whole lot. We haven't processed it. Here's what I'm trying to drive at, you guys. We know the things that we're reading in 1 John. Very few of you, if any, in this room have never heard this before, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want you to understand is living simply, disentangling your life from the stuff that wants to distract you and pull you the wrong direction and cause you to live in sin, pulling those things apart starts with you daily, daily understanding who you are in Christ daily understanding that you still are a person who needs God's mercy, not just that you needed him one day, one time, but that you need him every day, all the time, that his grace is what sustains us, not just what starts us on the Christian path, but it's what puts us back on the Christian path every morning when we wake back up and realize that somehow in the process of sleeping the night before, the gears of our heart have rusted to a standstill. Maybe you've never had that experience. I have it every day, to be honest with you. There are several things I have to do in my life on a daily basis in the morning, first thing, to try to unstick the gears of my heart, to unstick the gears of my spirit, to try as best I can to remember and focus on who God is and who I am. Because if I'm honest, I'm little, and I'm down here, and I don't have much to offer you or anybody else unless God chooses to use me. And God is high and lifted up. He's exalted over all things. He's good, he's right, he's lovely, he's beautiful, he loves me. He's done everything that, he, that anybody could ask him to do for me. And yet, while I sleep, for some reason, I feel like I start to kind of balance the scales a little bit. And I wake up in the morning and I feel pretty good about myself. Or I'm stuck in my own despair oftentimes, which is just as selfish as telling myself that I've hit a home run the last few days and don't really need God's help. I have to exercise, I have to practice what's true. I have to walk in the light, with start, which starts excuse me, by knowing who I am and by being willing to confront who I am, both without Christ and in Jesus, so that I stay humble and can live simply. John's solution in verse nine to you and I understanding who we are without Jesus is not despair, I'll show it to you again. But he says, if we are willing to confess, then God will be faithful. God will be righteous, God will forgive us of our sins, and more importantly, he doesn't just say everything's gonna be okay, he changes you. That's the end of verse 9. He erases, he washes away, he removes, cleanses the unrighteousness that caused the divide between you and him in the first place. So we have to see who we are. We are people who needed God to do that. 
who still need God to cleanse us. We need Jesus to stay our advocate, to stay standing in the gap between us and God's wrath, saying, I have paid the price, enough is enough. This person should be seen as good and right and clean because I am giving my life to them in exchange for the life that they have tried to live, which has been futile and has not brought them closer to God. The irony, I think, of following Jesus is that it begins, you begin to follow Jesus by admitting that you neither want to follow Jesus nor can you follow Jesus. It's waving a white flag. That's why we talk about surrender. We sing about surrender in Christian churches because it begins, following Jesus into obedience begins by saying, I can't take a single step forward without your help. I'm not going to ever do any of this stuff that you've asked me to do unless you get inside of my life and begin to push and pull on things that I can't change and make me into the kind of person who can be obedient, a person that I am not right now. We realize who we are, we, we admit who we are, and then when we come to God, though we might feel sure that all he's going to do is crush us if we would admit our sinfulness and our wickedness to him, he doesn't. Because he's merciful, he cleanses us. Because he loves us, he lifts us up out of the darkness and despair that we've created for ourselves that we've built around ourselves in our lives. He fixes the problems that we have. He doesn't just say, it's okay, no big deal, don't worry about it. He says, I'm gonna change you into the kind of person where this isn't going to be the rest of your life. You're not gonna be stuck in this endless cycle of repeating the same damaging sins that you've been stuck in all this time. God is merciful, and that means that the death of Jesus applies to our lives. He frees us from the penalty of sin, separation from God. The life of Jesus applies to our lives, which means that we've been credited with righteousness. That means that the obedience of Jesus is substituted for our rampant disobedience. And when God looks at us, he isn't just tricked, but there's actually been an exchange made. Oftentimes we talk about God looking at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ, and it almost sounds like maybe God is a simpleton a little bit, and he's easy to trick, right? That Jesus just puts on a Philip mask and stands in part of heaven when God looks over and God's like, oh, Philip's righteous, that's weird, I thought he wasn't. And then he goes back to doing whatever God does with the rest of his time. That's not it at all. There's been a formal exchange made where I am actually made righteous. I don't just look like I'm righteous. The substitution isn't just Jesus dressing up like me for a day and going through the motions so I don't have to go to hell. It's a true exchange of his full righteousness for my full unrighteousness. It's all I've ever done wrong, traded for all he ever did right. There's nothing like that. Nothing will humble you faster than embracing that on a daily basis. There is no better, no sharper knife that can cut to the root of what your life is about than starting your days with God and embracing that idea again. If you've read any of the great Christian writers or thinkers, you realize that as they get older and they mature in their faith, it's not that they spend less time apologizing. That might be what you'd expect, right? You'd think that the longer you walk with Jesus, the less you have to say sorry for because you're becoming more and more righteous, right? That's the idea. The reality is that you end up apologizing more. Not because you're becoming worse as you follow Jesus, but because your eyes are being opened to the magnitude, to the fact that everything in your life has been smeared over with sin, and therefore it is not worth offering to God unless his mercy intervenes. Him choosing to receive anything from you as an offering, as a sacrifice, is evidence of his love and his mercy. And then Jesus' resurrection applied to our lives means that the life that we gain in our exchange with Jesus isn't just life on earth, it's life for eternity. That's what I told you a second ago. It doesn't go away. The check doesn't bounce. It clears. And we know that what we've begun to experience on earth with God, the Spirit of God inhabiting our lives, walking in obedience to Jesus, that it's just the tip of the iceberg of eternity with God. That all we're going to do when this life is over is go to be with God physically and continue to love him and follow him and do what he says and be filled to the brim with joy because that's what we were built and programmed to do from the beginning. John tells us that if we confess our sins, then we are forgiven 
which fixes the relationship with God, but even more than that, because of Jesus, we are cleansed. We lose our unrighteousness by admitting that we have it. We lose the darkness in our lives by admitting that we have darkness in our lives. And that's the second step of simplicity. It's for you to tell the truth to yourself. It's all good and well to know these things. It's a different thing entirely to put these things into practice. Putting them into practice is going to involve you opening your mouth once in a while and talking to yourself about this. I know you guys have been online enough that you've seen people who do vision boards and believe in manifesting. They say out loud over and over the kinds of things that they think are going to happen in their life. None of that does anything. The only little effect that it has is it begins to convince their own mind that these things are true about them, which probably sets them up to be a little more optimistic than they would have been otherwise. But there is something powerful about the way the mind works that what we hear on repeat over and over again plays a shaping role in who we become, the kinds of decisions that we make. So my advice to you would be, literally, tell the truth to yourself. Find a way to communicate to God out loud if you can, if you can find the time and the space in your life, who God is and what he's done. There's very little that you could do that would be more effective in helping slowly transform your life from being entangled in all the sin and ambition and self-seeking that the world is discipling you to pursue and turning from those things to a very simple idea of, God, today, I'm going to pursue your kingdom. And I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do that. So I'm just going to be open. I'm going to be open to you, to your leadership, to whoever you might bring by my life whoever you might put on my schedule, whoever you might have interrupt me here and there, I'm going to be you know, careful to prioritize the responsibilities that I have. But outside of that, I'm going to allow enough margin that I can follow you. And it's going to be little steps here and there. Maybe it's not a sweeping career change. Maybe it's not a big move to a new country. It could just be small changes all day long where I'm more open, more kind, more ready to embrace people who normally I would have moved past, ignored, uh, and seen as an obstacle to the objectives in my day. If you don't remember, we defined simplicity a few weeks ago like this. We said that simplicity is a mindset of joyful unconcern for possessions, for prestige, and for personal advancement. And we've talked at length about how to cultivate contentment by becoming joyfully unconcerned with our possessions, with our time, with our prestige. But what about personal advancement? How do we do this? Let's get practical. How do you and I become the kind of people who no longer see everyone that we meet and every work assignment and every conversation with a higher-ranking officer or a regional manager or whoever as an opportunity to make an impression? How do we stop doing that? How do we stop viewing people as a rung on the ladder, as someone who might have something to offer us, as a person where if we play our cards right and we interact according to whatever the rules of engagement are in our place of work, we can advance, we can advance, we can advance. What if we were able to let go of that and the people who had the power to promote us just became people in our eyes? The people who had the power to bring us down just became people in our eyes. What if we didn't have a death grip on those circumstances so ready to manipulate and play the game? What if instead we could let go of those things and wait and see what God might do if we were simply faithful day to day, minute to minute? I believe that that starts by finding out who we are. And you probably agree with that. Otherwise, why would you be in a church today on Sunday morning, right? You, you know the gospel is the gospel. You've at least heard about it before. And, and you think that there's something about it that's applied to your life that's good and beneficial and right. You know you're a sinner. You know that Jesus saves sinners. But has your sinfulness and Jesus' mercy toward that sinfulness, has that mercy affected your ambition yet or not? Or is your ambition still pretty similar to what it was before you met Jesus? your desire to advance, your desire to move forward, your desire to be bigger and better all the time, up and to the right, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Is that still driving you? Because that didn't drive Jesus, and it wasn't a part of his instructions to his disciples, 
And it's not within anything that Paul wrote to the early churches, except there's a couple places in his writings and in James that talk about partiality and how we ought never be partial to people who have more or who can offer us more. So there's a little bit about that, but it certainly doesn't incline itself toward us being worldly in the way that we navigate our workplace, navigate our ambition, navigate our opportunities. I wonder if you've ever allowed the part of you that knows that any value in your life comes from Christ? Have you allowed that part of you to spill over into the part of you that holds on to your five-year plan? Have those things made contact? Has the mercy of God and what it means to follow Jesus made an impact on how you plan to advance or not, what your priorities are or not? I believe the way that you become joyfully unconcerned with your personal advancement is by telling the truth to yourself. It's not just knowing that you're sinful. It's not just knowing that you are in need of a savior. It's saying that you are sinful. It's admitting out loud that you are in need of a savior and saying that to God and saying that to yourself and saying that to other people. My friends, as long as we believe that we are pretty good and doing pretty well on our own and headed mostly in the right direction without having to consult the spirit of God, we will not live simply. We will not seek first the kingdom of God. We'll seek the kingdom of God, but we'll do that when we have enough time or we'll fit God into the cracks and the spaces around the things that we feel like make up our real life instead of making God our total priority. Here's what that looks like in practice. I want to read you a little bit of a longer quote here from one of my favorite authors. Dallas Willard in 1999 wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines, and in that book he uses the way that many Christians interact with the poor as a good litmus test for whether or not we see ourselves rightly in light of the cross. Here's what he says. He says, our problem is not primarily with how we see the poor, but with how we see ourselves. If we still think and we convey by our behavior that in some way we are fundamentally different and better as persons from the man sleeping in the discarded boxes in the alley, then we have not been brought with clear eyes to the foot of the cross, seeing our own neediness in light of the cross. We have not looked closely at the lengths to which God had to go to reach us. We have not learned to live always and thankfully in the cross's shadow. From that vantage point alone is our solidarity with the destitute to be realized. So how do we respond to that man sleeping in those discarded boxes? Does it take great and awkward effort even to acknowledge his presence or to speak to him if need be or to take his hand or help him with his few possessions? Are we frightened of him though the circumstances are perfectly safe? Do we shrink from being near him or dealing with him? Or how about others who are not in such extreme condition? Does the fact that a person is without work or without an apartment or without an automobile make us treat him or her as if he or she were different? If so, then we have not truly beheld our own ruined condition. And because of this, we cannot heartily love that person. We need to see ourselves honestly, not so that we can be beat down by Christianity. We need to see ourselves honestly, not so that we can feel despair or, or live in this kind of bleak fog of all I ever do is wrong and there's no real reason for me to even try because I'm just going to sin and get it wrong over and over again. No, admitting our own sinfulness is the doorway into a different kind of life. And that different kind of life is not about self-exaltation. If following Jesus for you has mostly looked like the things that you were doing in your life just going better, well, good for you. Maybe some things have worked out. But Jesus seems to think that following him is going to look like less things working out the way that you wanted. Letting go of the willpower, letting go of your desire, letting go of your plan to, to have everything go the way that you would like. 
I think Dallas hits the nail on the head because often for us, we are really good at playing Christian with other people that are at about the same socioeconomic level. But when it comes time to play up into a league above us or down into a league below, if you know what I'm saying, we fail to do that. We change. Who we are, how we act, how we present ourselves totally changes based on the social pressure that we feel to either play the savior to people who are a step below us or to give sort of fealty and bow down and grovel to the people who are above us because of how that might ultimately work out for our good in the end. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the early churches. He says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I can be the same Paul no matter which way I'm playing, no matter who I'm interacting with. And for many of us, we haven't arrived at that point yet, and I believe that's because we fail on a daily basis to review who we are without Jesus and the magnitude of his mercy that humbles us to the ground where we belong. You see, when we choose to ignore who we are, which is sinners saved by grace, then we don't tell ourselves the truth. And therefore, we lose our ability to love hardly anybody but ourselves. We won't live simply. Things like keeping God's kingdom first will continue to feel like something we have to work hard at instead of just being in our nature. Because when we've been humbled by knowing who we are in Christ, we lose that sense of like neediness that we live with. We gain the ability to interact with other people and ourselves honestly because we're not consumed with whether or not things are going to work out for us. We know that they will because we've already been in a position of extreme despair. We've already hit rock bottom when we turned our attention to Jesus in the first place. And when we were at that rock bottom place, we did not die. We were saved. So we lose that fear of rock bottom again. We don't have to worry about what would happen if we ever went back there. We know what will happen. Jesus will save us again. He'll pull us back up out of the mire. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. What I'm saying is, experientially, you can expect Jesus to stick his hand down into the mud where you are drowning every single time you get there. If you can believe that and embrace it, then you lose the need to make sure that you never go back to that place again. And when you stop insulating your life from what could go wrong, possibilities are endless on how loving you can become on how radically different you can be than all the people that are following the way of the world and basically doing the same thing, trying to get more stuff and then keep it safe and get more stuff and keep it safe and get more opportunities and keep it safe. You can lose that and you can become a person who can follow the Spirit of God any direction instead of going the course of the world. So if we want to do that, if we want to discipline our spirits with the kind of honest, open simplicity that we see in Jesus that John recommends in 1 John that Paul seems to have discovered in order to be content, how do we do so? To me, there's two steps and they go hand in hand. If you want to tell the truth to yourself, that looks like confession and it looks like repentance. So there you go. Repentance not to be saved again. Repentance to be honest with God. God doesn't need to hear you talk to him about how much better he is than you. He's not waiting on pins and needles. Oh, I hope Philip has something nice to to say about me again this morning because my whole ego hinges on what he thinks of me. Not at all. I confess to God who he is in my life because it's good for me to do that. He doesn't need any of it. I need to do it. I was built, wired to worship him. When I'm doing anything other than that, I'm out of whack. And I can get back in step with him by returning to what I know is true, by finding out who I am and then telling the truth to myself. And by confession and by repentance, I invite Jesus into my brokenness that I've already had to admit by looking into the spiritual mirror and understanding who I am in God's eyes. We never receive condemnation from God when we're honest about ourselves. What we receive from him is the washing from unrighteousness that sticks. We admit that we'll never change on our own, and in so doing, we take the first step toward real and lasting change with God, with the power of his Spirit. So look back at 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. I'll read these to you again, and this is where we'll finish. I want to remind you of the hope that you have that's available to you 
in this kind of simple living with Jesus. John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Here's your good news. Here's the reason you don't have to protect yourself anymore. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. What that means is that there's more than enough mercy in Jesus for everyone on earth. And that mercy is available to anyone who wants to enter into the kingdom of God, which is where God's will is lived out by people who are surrendered to Jesus. You and I, thankfully, are a part of the anyone. We're a part of the whole world for whom Jesus is willing to atone. So I would ask you, will you accept that truth about yourself? Do you want to live a simpler life? Do you want a good reason to not be so consumed with the stuff that keeps you up at night? The door is open to you. Jesus has opened it through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He says, come in, enter into me, and I will give you rest. I'll take that yoke of the world off, and I'll put a new yoke on your shoulders, and it will be easy, and it will be light. You and I feel like that must be hyperbole. That feels so exaggerated based on our Christian experiences. Maybe the problem isn't Jesus. Maybe the problem is us. And maybe what we've done is overcomplicate and overentangle what it means to simply see who we are in Christ and live out of that simple position. My hope for you is that you will find your meaning, your purpose, your vision in Christ alone. What I can promise you is if you will, he will take care of the rest. Let me pray that for you. Father, thank you for your word and the chance to gather together in the room today. Uh, Father, it's a gift to me to get to expound on what you've said in your scriptures so clearly to us, where we get our hope from. I pray today that we've spent enough time talking about your grace. It's tough, God. It's hard to be able to balance this thing on like how much do we deal with where we came from and how much do we deal with what you've done for us in light of that. We want to become the kind of people, God, who know who we are without Jesus, but we don't want to stay there. We want to admit that we're not okay. We want to admit that everything isn't going great, that we don't have it down, and then meet you at that point. I pray today, God, that you would take advantage of our honesty with ourselves. I pray that you would give us the faith to be honest with ourselves and maybe with others, God, with our family members, with our spouses, our roommates, to be able to say, I have been living out of my own self-righteousness. I've been living on my own power, leaning on my own skills and abilities. And God, give us the faith to step out of that and back into trust that all we have to do is keep our eyes on you, knowing who we are and what you've done for us, and that we can live a simple kind of life as Christians with you first and foremost. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.